Welcome to the Future Fix. When you picture a community fighting off disaster, you probably think about first responders. Maybe you imagine firefighters tirelessly trying to contain a brush fire in Alberta. Or you might think of volunteers heaving sandbags down to the disappearing shore of the Red River in Manitoba. Whatever you imagine, you probably don't picture someone out gathering data. But, as the expression goes, the best offense is a good defense. The more data we're able to gather about how, when, and where a disaster might occur, the better we're able to combat it, or even prevent it altogether. With a dramatic rise in the frequency and scale of climate-related disasters, the need for reliable data is more important than ever. And that need is sparking innovation all over the country. You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is part six of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. The city of Fredericton, New Brunswick, and the surrounding area is built along the shallow St. John River Basin and is plagued with frequent flooding. This is a huge problem for municipalities, homeowners, farms, and businesses. There was data available with which you could forecast where flooding would occur and to what extent, but it was difficult for people to access. Geomatics engineer Bernie Connors brought the idea for an accessible flood monitoring app to a group of volunteers called Civic Tech Fredericton, and Riverwatch was born. Here's Bernie. I've been working for the province of New Brunswick uh, since the 90s, and in 2012, one of our uh, government departments created an application to help distribute the flood forecast data that the province uh, broadcasts. It was a, an okay app, but it was built on the uh, Flash Player, which meant it wasn't supported on any mobile devices. Right. And once you're flooded out of your home, you typically don't have access to your desktop computer. So when you're flooded out of your home, you have your mobile device, and that may be your only means to access uh, any of these applications. So, you know, I, I saw that there was a, a shortcoming in how the government was publishing the flood forecast data. So I pitched the idea to Civic Tech that, you know, we should build a better tool to help the government distribute their flood forecast data. And, and that was Riverwatch. How, how, how do people use Riverwatch? Well, it's, it's just a mobile website is what it is. We uh, would connect to the exact same data source that the uh, province of New Brunswick was uh, providing uh, to other agencies, the, uh, the same data source for the flood forecast data. You, you could run it on a desktop or a mobile device, and uh, the application would allow you to view the flood forecast data as a series of graphs. 
Uh, right now, for, there's 25 sites within the uh, St. John River Basin where the uh, government is forecasting the water levels. And so for each one of those 25 sites, we have a, a dot on the map, and each one of those will link you to a graph for that community. And the app launched uh, in April 2018, just one month before the big significant flooding that you mentioned in 2018. Is that yeah. part of the popularity of, of the app? I, I think, yes, it was very timely that we launched the app in 2018 uh, because, as you just mentioned, it was some of the highest water that had been seen in the uh, lower St. John River Basin uh, for about 30 years. So certainly there, uh, we saw a lot of traffic on the application in, in 2018. But then again, in 2019, we had a, a very similar flood as far as uh, the uh, elevation of the water. So we had two significant flood events back-to-back, and everybody's very uh, curious to see what uh, 2020 holds for the flood season. And so this app was made possible by a mixture of uh, community organizing and uh, open data. Can you speak a little to what what went into creating it and how it came about at at a great speed? I I think I saw six months. Yeah, actually, uh, like we had our first meeting in uh, November of 2017, and uh, we were ready for the flood season for the first forecasts in March of 2018. So it was really only about four months of development time. And I think what made it possible was that, uh, you know, we were working with a very small group. There were really only three or four of us involved uh, from Civic Tech. And uh, we had one really excellent JavaScript programmer, Christine Harvey, who uh, did uh, all of the, basically all of the coding for us. You know, it really wasn't a complex program. We had uh, a data file provided by the government that had the water elevations in it. And we just had to come up with the presentation method, you know, to make that nice and user-friendly and and easy to digest by the public. And then the higher levels of government uh, kind of, they noticed the the success of this app and uh, they're now kind of taking it over as a sort of permanent uh, official civic use. Uh, Yes. Yeah. In in 2018, we actually had a, a joint, press event with uh, the province between the Civic Tech Fredericton and the province of New Brunswick and uh, the head of the emergency organization measures, the EMO, the head of the EMO for the province of New Brunswick is there. And one of the uh, ministers uh, from the province of New Brunswick is there. We not only uh, impressed them, but several of them were actually surprised and weren't aware that we were working on this tool. And uh, over, you know, Civic Tech operated the application in 2018 and 2019 and the uh, government, you know, recognized that, you know, this is a critical service that Civic Tech, Fredericton, a volunteer organization, was providing to the citizens. They realized that, you know, this really was an operation that the uh, government should be handling. And, you know, they felt, that, uh, you know, the application uh, would be more secure and have better support if it had the resources of the government behind it, you know. I have my foot in both camps, and so it was uh, quite easy uh, to uh, help uh, migrate the application back into uh, government hands. And so uh, another flooding season is coming up in a couple of months. Uh, How do you hope people are able to use Riverwatch in 2020? Well, um, the interface to the application is going to be essentially identical, so 
you know, and will be uh, it'll be available at the exact same web address. So users will be able to use the application exactly as they have in 2018 and 2019. We've made some. Uh, significant improvements in the data that's available in the application. In the uh, past two seasons, the flood forecast data just had the current day's water elevation and then one water elevation for the next five days in the future. So there was not very dense data uh, because when the water levels increase, they can increase rapidly in a matter of hours as opposed to you know having uh, you know having a forecast that only gives you one elevation per day, so now the uh, forecast data will have hourly interval data, so and we'll have five days of measured uh, water elevations, and we'll have five days of forecast water elevations. So instead of having five or six data points on the graph, we're going to have you know like 200 data points on the graph. It's uh, going to be a huge improvement. And as uh, municipalities uh, all over the country deal with more extreme and more frequent climate events, what role do you think civic tech and uh, open data play in uh, not just uh, forecasting it, uh, but uh, managing it and maybe even preventing it? I'd say it's impossible to prevent flood events, but, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, mitigation and, uh, you know, flood awareness. And I'm I'm hoping that the uh, Riverwatch mobile app specifically, will give people a stronger awareness of, uh, you know, where these flood events occur and uh, how much damage they can cause. And I'm hoping that uh, people will make changes, uh, either make changes in where they live or make changes in, uh, you know, their flood preparedness and how, uh, you know, what they can do to uh, flood-proof their, their properties if they do choose to live or work in a floodplain. And and in general, I I am a proponent of open data, and uh, it's certainly uh, an enabler for all of the uh, civic tech uh, chapters uh, across Canada and and in other countries. Having access to the data is one of the key factors we require in order to build some of the applications that we're we're creating to help citizens uh, either be more aware of their government or to help them, you know, to uh, fill some gaps in in, uh, government services. Well, Bernie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the call. So, for the people of Fredericton, having disaster data at their fingertips is a helpful tool when dealing with dramatic annual flooding. But how far-reaching are the applications of data in the face of a variety of disasters, from small to large? We know these events are going to happen, but how much does emergency preparedness add to a community's resilience? Here's Josh Bowen, manager of the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology's Center for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management in Edmonton. Our center, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, or NATE, is built on the belief that communities and organizations are made resilient by engaging in professional development and training environments before a disaster happens. So it does two things, really that lets people build their professional networks, but also share information and really understand the challenges that people face in different sectors of the the economy that are affected by disasters. We focus on training and then public engagement events. 
to be able to really foster resilience across communities and economic sectors. Right. And and when we're speaking about these disasters, uh, what are the disasters specific to Alberta? Because there, there's there been a number of very big ones uh, all over the country, but uh, a, a large number of them have happened right there in Alberta. Absolutely. Uh, nine out of the 10 costliest insured disasters in Canadian history happened here in Alberta. In terms of natural hazards, the big events that we face here are things like windstorms, hail, flooding, and wildfire. And that's that's generally true across Canada. Some areas that, like BC have far more, far more prone to earthquake and uh, the Yukon and the Ottawa Valley as well. And then obviously the East Coast uh, is susceptible to hurricane as well. From a technological hazard perspective, there's a lot of potential for events to occur uh, where you've got industrial sites or uh, hazardous material, everything from you know, train derailments near bodies of water to a large hazardous material released at, at an industrial site. And then beyond that, there's also uh, issues of deliberate uh, and intentional hazards, things like terrorism, things like uh, sabotage, uh, and even ransomware. And then we're also seeing a, a kind of a, a rise in the intensity and frequency of, of climate-related disasters. Absolutely. And what we're, what we're seeing with climate change is an increased frequency in extreme weather. Mm-hmm. So everything from heat waves and drought in certain parts of the world to rising water levels in coastal areas to more intense and frequent storms. You, you speak a lot about the importance of data in, in being prepared for these uh, potential emergencies. Can, can you talk about how data ties in? To quote one of the members of my team, we live and die by data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that is incredibly true. The first thing starts with knowing what the hazards are that are around. So understanding how the natural world impacts the built world and how that then relates with the social world is absolutely critical. So you could have one community that uh, is bracketed by a river on one side and a major highway on another, and that community may be incredibly vulnerable based on the natural hazards that are there, or they're not. And it really depends on a lot of different things, including the the social resilience of the community, pulling census data and saying, right, we know that the median age of this community is 64. If you only take that piece of data, maybe that's a highly vulnerable population. But if you add in saying, you know, the median uh, income is quarter million dollars, uh, which is well above the Canadian average, now that instantly becomes a less vulnerable population because chances are they have means of transportation and they have means to sustain themselves. Whereas if that same population was 65 with a median income of $30,000, they're a far more vulnerable population. So being able to understand how natural hazards impact the social world and, and the other way around is absolutely critical. And building the data sets that support all of that information and tie things together is where we really need to get to. What are the challenges to collecting the kind of data required for emergency preparedness? There's a few. The first and uh, most significant one is just the availability of the data in usable formats. So a lot of the geographical, the natural world data is available through things like Natural Resources Canada or other land surveys. And then clearly the social data is available through Stats Canada and the census and other mechanisms. Mm-hmm. 
but having data in essentially a relational relational database where it can actually talk to each other and then you can understand how this piece of information relates to that piece of information is where we really need to build the the capability mm-hmm. to understand it in a way that's beyond a spreadsheet. And so can you give us some like kind of on the ground examples of how this data is being applied uh, in the name of disaster relief and, and preparedness? One of the best examples in Canada is in the, the 50s, they looked at flooding around Winnipeg and said, right, we know this is where floods usually happen. We know that uh, when we have large melts, fast melts uh, in the springtime, we know that this is where uh, we flood. So they actually did a whole bunch of work to collect what was the value of the properties. Is it cheaper to mitigate flooding as it happens? Or do we want to build a massive floodway? And the decision was made to build a floodway based on understanding the impact from a financial perspective of flooding that occurs you know, every few years. And that project has quite literally diverted water countless times around Winnipeg and has resulted in billions of dollars being saved in, in potential impact. So one of the key things is we know that for every dollar invested in mitigation and preparedness activities before disaster happens, you actually save $6 in a response. And it's much larger when you look at recovery after an event that takes years, if not decades. And with the rise of these climate events happening all over Canada, I was wondering if it, if these disasters are kind of sparking innovation, are they challenging people maybe at a quicker pace than they would have to come up with uh, new data and tech solutions? I would have to say yes. There's so many different organizations that are developing tools and new applications for old tools to be able to support disaster and emergency management. Everything from large military-grade drones that are being used to collect information real-time during a disaster to help responders focus their efforts Mm -hmm. to communication tools that are designed to say, what are the actual needs on the ground and who can support it? Uh, Almost uh, leveraging the sharing economy to be able to to fast-track resources to where they're actually needed. And so these are things that are being talked about or are actually being implemented? Both of those are actually being implemented uh, by Canadians here in Canada. Um, like the, the drones, for example? Absolutely. There's a company in Western Canada that's uh, currently pushing that technology quite far ahead, and it, it's really exciting because they're now able to provide 24-7 coverage over a disaster where in the past, uh, even when we're looking at some of the major wildfires we've had, those are all based on helicopters being able to fly to monitor. So there's a gap during non-daylight hours and the overnight hours where we're not collecting information and we're not able to inform decision-making. So when you go to start your day, your best information is 12 hours old. What would you like to see the next giant leap in data and uh, emergency preparedness? Uh, What do you think uh, we're on the cusp of and what needs to happen? The key is really understanding that interaction between the natural world, the built world, and the social world, mm-hmm. and being able to pull data in a way that actually informs rapid decision-making. So having a database that understands the relationship, so really bringing in machine learning uh, and AI to support the information being collected real-time from some of those advanced sensors, uh, as well as social media and people on the ground reporting information and and incidents. 
Uh, well, Josh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks so much, Ben. Great to be here. Whether or not people and governments are willing to take it seriously, the threat climate events pose to communities all over Canada is a real and mounting one. If necessity is the mother of invention, climate change should spark a whole lot of innovation. This can happen at a federal or provincial government level, or at the inaugural meeting of a grassroots hackathon. But however these safeguards come into being, when dealing with disaster, open access to reliable data is the fix. Thank you for listening to the Future Fix Solutions for Communities Across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Tune into our next French language episode hosted by Katia Gaed, and we'll be back with part seven of our series, all about how community hubs help bridge the digital divide.